Uh, I am Pastor Victor. I uh, live uh, in Sacramento and uh, cover 18 East Coast states for Christians United for Israel. It's a ministry that started with a couple hundred people about five and a half years ago. We now have 750,000 members. Because if you know, yeah, okay. If you remember during the Shoah, the Holocaust, uh, the Church of America was silent. Uh, do some history study on it, and it bewilders our Jewish friends to this day. Uh, Israel and the Jewish people are facing anti-Semitism in Europe that's the same levels as World War II. And if you turn on the TV at any time and don't hear the words debt ceiling, you will hear something about the Middle East and Jerusalem. The Jewish people are being threatened with the Holocaust again, and this time the church will not be silent. And so afterwards, we have a table full of stuff, all free, all kinds of materials on how you can make your voice heard. There's an Israel pledge card. I wish you would sign it. We have almost 400,000 of them, and we're going to very politely and reverently bring those to our president, who does not at this point seem to feel the same way we do about Israel. We think the Jews have a right to live in that land, and they've got the right to protect themselves. That's what the Israel pledge says. Please sign that afterwards, if you would. You got a table out there? And I'll finish with this. We also have a live CD of our band, and uh, if you'd like to get that. Oh, come on. Thank you, Mother. And... Um, uh, <laughs> It, uh, it keeps us in pancakes, so uh, which is pretty much how I keep the band together. Uh, Kelly, who was on the far end with the blonde hair, she and I uh, started in bands together when she was 16, uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, and we were in a rock and roll band together, so we've been singing together however many years that is. We all got saved during the Jesus movement. So a uh, number, and then, of course, my wife and my my daughter in the band. It's, uh, that should be in the Bible. If you can be in a band with your teenage daughter, do it. Thus saith the Lord. So anyway, uh, we have this wonderful, funny, amazing life. I live on the West Coast, but I work on the East Coast, so an airplane is my office. And uh, for the biggest pro-Israel movement in the world, Christians United for Israel, but my wife and I for 18 years have lived right in the middle of the biggest Sunni Pakistani Muslim neighborhood in all of Sacramento. That's where we live. And I mean right in the middle. Next door is Mohammed, and next door is Mohammed, and across the street is Mohammed, and Bacharat Saman, and uh, a, a bit. There's about a hundred of them. And we bought the house. We're not so noble as we thought we'd move in and, and, and change them. Uh, we bought it when we were in Jerusalem. We faxed an offering on a house we'd seen. We've been in, a, in the hood in Oak Park for 25 years, and this was down the street. Yeah, I'm bona fide. And uh, holla. So, um, thank you. So we bought this house. We had never been inside of it. Let me tell you. So we faxed in this offer. We're used to the hood. That's where we've been. We get back from Jerusalem. I get out of the car. We had four weeks to take this 100-year-old home and make it livable because we'd given our house to a single mom. I get out of the car just back from Jerusalem. Haven't slept in several days. I get out of the car, and I'm smelling curry and all kinds of spices. I hear what I think is a call to prayer from the duplex next to our house. And out walks a woman, all burkered up. All you see is her eyes. Oh, who said that? Because that's what I said. Oh, exactly. Oh, I said, Lord, I have had jet lag before. But am I not? Back in Sacramento in my new home. We had bought a house right in the middle of the biggest Sunni Pakistani Muslim neighborhood in all of Sacramento. And let me tell you, love works. They would love to see me. Uh, they'd love to see me become a Muslim because they love me. I would love for them, with tears, to to know that Jesus uh, uh, is more than a prophet.
uh, it's, I have a thousand stories of this wonderful relationship with them. They're not, they're not moderate. They're starting Ramadan today. They will not eat. It's a month of fasting from sunup till sundown. They won't spit from the time they get up till they go to bed. They will not swallow their spit. That's how sincere they are in their fasting. But they're not militant. They're not moderate, but they're not militant. It's a long story. Maybe someday I'll come back and tell you a little bit about that. Anyway, what a funny life we have. We, uh, with great reverence, refer to the Almighty as Jehovah Sneaky because we just have no idea what He's doing with us. And if you ever have that feeling, just say amen right now. Lord, have your way. We have no idea what it is, but have it. Uh, it, when I say it's an honor to be here, that's how everybody starts these, these messages. But I, I mean that I, I know Pastor Lance, and to be given his pulpit to stand behind uh, is really remarkable. And uh, it's a responsibility that, that carries great, great weight to it. I was a, a young man, and um, uh, the company I worked for, we were selling some high-end computers with proprietary software, and I had been asked, I had been chosen, I had been given the honor of, of doing a sales presentation to all the bigwigs from the state capitol. And uh, it was an honor with great responsibility. And so I went, I set up my equipment, uh, I was feeling a rush coming over me at the responsibility, I went to the bathroom, I splashed some water, I, I did my affirmations, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people just like you, and, and uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> this must have been back in the John Travolta era, because I tucked in my shirt about ten times, and I go, it's still wrinkled. It's still wrinkled, trying to get that white suit thing, and I just kept tucking it in, I remember. Anyway, I went out, did my presentation, they were mesmerized. I killed it! I just hit a home run. I'm, this is a young man, okay? Just give me some liberty here. I was a young man. And I knew I killed it. Oh, man, everyone's smiling at me, and uh, especially the women, and... And this one woman in charge came up to me afterwards as I was packing up, and, and um, I said, so, you have any questions? And, you know, she's trying to keep it professional. And she said, yeah, yeah, I do. And she grabbed me, spun me around, grabbed my coat and pulled it on my pants. I tucked in my pant coat into my soup and my underwear had been showing the whole time. <laughs> and obviously I've never forgot that and there's still a lot of pain. Let me just finish. Horrible. Hang on. Horrible. When I say I heard God speak to me, I don't hear voices, I don't. You get impressions, but I heard a voice. I heard a voice that day, and it has stuck with me. And the voice said, you ain't all that, little man. You better watch your bad old self. And uh, I remember that to this day, and it's done me well. Uh, I, I, I am a sinner saved by grace, and it should be printed on my card, those who have been forgiven much. <laughs> Love much. That's my only qualification for standing in front of you today. And trust me when I say I know it well. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 81? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Keep your hand up. They throw them from the back of the room. You're going to feel it hit your head. Put your hand out, sir. I'm kidding. Don't, you don't have to put your hand over your head. Just keep your up in the air. They're going to bring you a Bible. Nice thing about the book of Psalms, many nice things. Just open right to the middle of your Bible. You'll be in Psalms. And then find Psalm 81. That's what Lance asked me to speak on this morning. Uh, 
It has been a delight for me because it's a portion of Scripture, this specific psalm I have never uh, preached on. I, I was a pastor for 20 plus years in Sacramento, a music director as well. And uh, I have spent about the last 30 hours uh, of my life, at least over the last three weeks, with um, the writer of this psalm and his story. And let me tell you, it is amazing. Keep your hands up there coming to you. Thank you for your patience. Psalm 81. Let me ask you a few questions to prepare you for this. Have you ever been disillusioned ever with people? Wow, really? <laughs> okay. Uh, have you ever been hurt in the past, in the past, by church leaders? Still getting healed up from it, some of us, huh? Some of us on that one. Have you ever had things in your life, I mean big things in your life not go right, not go the way you've been praying for them, not going the way that it just seemed so absolutely clear they were going to go. Have you ever had things like that fall apart on you? Every day. There's an honest man. Have you ever gotten mad at God when that happens and run into the darkness of the shadows for comfort because it seemed like He wasn't keeping His promises and you could not find Him anywhere around? I'm going to say amen to that in my own life. Yeah, there's, there's been times. If you answered yes to any of these questions, you're going to really appreciate one of the great men of faith in the Bible who faced all of these tests and all of these questions. And until this morning, you probably don't know a thing about this man. His name was Asaph. And he's the songwriter of Psalm 81. Tehillim. Tehillim, praises, that's the Hebrew word for psalms. This is the book of Tehillim, the book of praises. And Tehillim number 81 is the one we're going to be looking at today. If you look at the very first verse, there's all kinds of instruction here. This song starts off with some instruction for the worship leader. And it says, for the conductor, on the getith. Some of your translations may say, from an instrument from Gath. I took this right out of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, and it says, on the Getith, which is, by the way, an instrument from Gath. I'll talk about that in a moment. And this is a psalm of Asaph. So, whoever's going to be leading the psalm, get out your Getith. That's That's the instrument you need to use. And just so you all know, this is written by Asaph. So if you like the psalm, let him know. Worship leaders can always use encouragement. The getith is, well, the Greek word that we take from that is called the getada. Getith, getada, stringed instrument, see where it goes? Guitar. And that's where this is from. It's a feminine noun. I only tell you that because the next time you see B.B. King playing his beautiful red Gibson 335 electric guitar, and he gives it a little kiss and calls it Lucille, he's right. Guitars are girls, according to the Bible. It's a feminine word. Drums, of course, are boys. See, Lance doesn't give you stuff like this, man. Somebody writing this? Anybody? This instrument is from the city of Gath. You ever heard of that place? Oh, you have, because they got some big old boys born and bred there in Gath. Goliath and his family is from the city of Gath. Get this picture. Goliath has just called out David. I'm going to feed your body to the 
birds in the air and the beasts of the field, David says, Oh, no, sir, you're not. I'm a child of the living God, and you've just called him out when you call me out. Here's what's going to happen, Goliath, from the city of Gath. I'm going to take your sword, David says. Then I'm going to take your head, and then I'm going to take your guitar. I like that. You know, we sometimes have giants in your life chasing us down. Let's do this right now. Will you repeat after me? Giant! Leave me alone. I'm a child of the living God. You can do me no harm because my God is for me. I'm going to take your sword. I'm going to take your head. And I'm going to take your guitar. And I'll say, uh! There you go. Every now and then we got to do that to our giants. Hey, and this is just verse one. What a psalm! What a song this is. Asaph was King David's music director. Asaph was Pastor Lance's Jake. He really was. He wrote 12 psalms. Now think about that. Asaph, this man we know nothing about, wrote more of the Bible than Peter did. He wrote more of the Bible than Jesus' little brother James wrote. He wrote more of the Bible than Jude and Jonah and Amos and Micah and Joel and Malachi and Zephaniah and Nahum and Haggai and Obadiah. Asaph wrote more of the Word of God than all of these great men of God. And yet we know very little about him, but there's much that can be learned about him in the Scripture. Let me tell you about songwriters. I, as a music director, I've, I don't know, maybe written 75, 100 songs, and... And most songwriters write out of their life experience. Unless you're the Beatles. John Lennon and Paul McCartney got together one day. It's a true story. And Lennon had a big expansion on his house in Escher, England that he was putting on. And he said to uh, Paul, he said, okay, today let's write a swimming pool for me. He needed money to add on to his home. They literally sat down together and wrote the song eight days a week so that John could have a swimming pool for his house. That's not how Asaph wrote. He did not write for money, and he did not write just because words rhymed or silly love songs. He wrote out of his life experience, out of his experience with God, and obviously he was a pen of God. But God uses people to do his work, and he used the life experience of Asaph, and you're going to be very surprised in this psalm by the time we're done. It's critical we get to know Asaph just a little bit because he's going to ask us to follow him today as our, as our worship leader through this psalm. And he wants to show us how we can navigate our lives out of the darkness and disappointment and the mire of destruction when it hits each of our lives and how we can keep from running away from God into darkness for comfort, finding ourselves undone in the seasons of life that just don't make any sense. And if you haven't had a season like that yet, it's just because you're young, saint. You will. Life has winter seasons, but spring is always around the corner. Learning how to hang on in winter is a huge part of our faith. Asaph was right around 100 years old when he wrote this magnificent psalm. 
And though he originally wrote it for the nation of Israel, obviously we understand all word, all the word of God is for our edification as well. Let's go to verse number 2. Sing praises to the God who is our might. Sound the shofar to the God of Jacob. The shofar is a ram's horn. You've seen them. You just heard one. Raise your voice in song and give forth with the timbrel, tambourine, a pleasant harp with the lyre, a couple of string instruments. This second verse represents something phenomenal that has just taken place between God and man. During the reign of King David, the music ministry of Asaph, something enormous had changed and he was part of it. This young Levitical priest ministered before the Ark of the Covenant. You've all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you look inside, your head explodes. Um, the Ark of the Covenant is where the Shekinah, is how our Jewish friends say it. We say Shekinah because we mess up every Hebrew word because we're all Gentiles. But the Shekinah, the very presence of God, lived in this golden ark with the angels on the top. This ark had been tucked away in the tabernacle of the wilderness and the high priest alone could go in front of it once a year and intercede on behalf of the sins of God's people. This Ark of the Covenant was now moved to Jerusalem. And this is where Asaph would minister with song with the other Levites. The animal sacrifices kept going on day and night. They had to, to cover the sins of the Jewish people. But that was in Gibeon, in the tabernacle of the wilderness. This new thing that was happening, when he wrote this about coming before the ark, not with animals and blood and sacrifice, but coming before God's presence with the fruit of your lips, this was brand new. This had never happened. God was doing something huge. He was inviting all of Israel to come into His presence with the sacrifice of praise from lips. And Asaph was a part of this. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. You've got to understand, we have got to understand the Hebrew meaning of the word thanksgiving. I've heard people mistranslate the New Testament and say, well, you know, we're supposed to give thanks for all things. No, you're not. What kind of ghoul would give thanks if his precious grandson gets cancer? Give thanks for all things? It doesn't say give thanks for all things. The Word of God says give thanks in all things. What's the difference? First of all, we have to understand the word thanks. The word is todah. If you go to, how many of you have been to Israel? How many of you want to go? Okay, we've got to fix that real fast. You really should. It's, it's astounding. In Israel, you, all, you order a falafel, or you should eat many of them while there, uh, or, or cups of Turkish coffee with fresh bread dipped in hyssop. Oh, it's dreamy. When the person serves you, you say to them, Toda, Toda Rabbah, thank you. Thank you very much. And, and today, the meaning is very much as uh, we see it. If you do a kindness for me, I simply acknowledge it by saying thank you to you. That's not what the Hebrew word tada means. Not at all. Not at all at all. The Hebrew word tada is from the, the verb yada. Yada means two things. Number one, it, it is the, um, the posture of casting something, throwing something. Uh, yada, throwing something with the hands. Do you see where this is going? Yada, thanks. The second part of this word yada, which toda comes from, means to make known or confess 
or declare. Giving thanks in the Bible means to declare the things God has done with extended hands. And it has to be done in the presence of others to be thanks indeed. You do me a great kindness back in the days of the Bible, I would say to you, I'm going to make your name known. I'm going to give thanks for this. And you knew that I was going to be talking about you all over the place because I would make known the kindness you did for me. I will make this known. I will speak of your name. That's what it meant when you told someone you were going to give thanks. Now, doesn't that make a whole lot more sense that we enter His gates? I, there's Hey, there's seasons of life. You're not going to find much of a thank you, Jesus, in me. Not for what's going on. I'm just being honest. But I can do this. I can remember the works of the Lord, His creation, the days that He has rescued me in the past, His mighty acts and His power. I can remember those things. And the psalmist asks us to do that because if we can just get to His gates, how do we enter His gates? With thanksgiving. Todah. In our heart. That's how we find the gates. Beloved, when the day is dark and your life is a absolute mess in front of you and you don't know up from down the psalmist says find his gates find his gates and do it by remembering what he has done for you because if you will begin announcing recalling it's an act of the will forgetting is an act of the will i won't remember i'm too sad i don't want to remember what he's done that's an act of the will the psalmist says don't do it Give thanks in all things. Remember what He's done for you. Do it with extended hands if you get all charismatic-y. But it's also biblically, with extended hands, remember what God has done for you. You will find His gates. And if you get anywhere close to the gates of the Most High, He will snatch you up and bring you in. And in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. And you will be safe for that moment from the winter in your life. This verse 2, come before the Lord with singing, all that, praising, all that is right there. And you see this new priestly duty repeated over and over again throughout the Scriptures. And we thought we invented praise and worship. Mm -mm. It's been going on a long, long time. The next verse, uh, verse 3, sound the shofar. On the new moon, on the appointed time and day of the festival. This new moon, sounding of the shofars, making reference to the Feast of Trumpets. I believe Lance has tossed, taught on some of the feasts of Israel here, and, and if he's not, he will in the future. The Feast of Trumpets is one of these uh, feasts that we know very little about. Pretty much it says, blow your horn, take a rest for the day, and offer up some sacrifices. And that's all God gives us on it. That's it. Some of the feasts are very detailed, uh, and, and this one is not, but God says to do it. There are many uh, theologians, New Testament theologians, that believe that it's during the Feast of Trumpets, which we, we know when that is from the book of Leviticus, speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation, the Feast of Trumpets. So we know right when this season is. There are many New Testament theologians that believe this season is when Christ will come back. 
We know his life has lined itself up with other seasons. I'll take the most obvious, the the Feast of uh, Passover. That's when Christ, of course, was offered as the sacrificial lamb. And that was during the Feast of Passover for all the Jews. That's why everyone was in Jerusalem. This Jewish feast, people believe, well, some theologians believe this is when Christ will come. There are a couple verses they use to connect that. One is in Matthew, and I read it from Matthew 24. He'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they'll gather his elect from the four winds. And they, they seem to link the Feast of Trumpets with this, this coming of Christ. There's another verse. Um, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. We that are alive and remain be caught up to, together in the clouds. So theologians believe that we will see the return of Christ during the Feast of Trumpets season. This is the season that... Asaph is talking about to the children of Israel. Blow the shofar. The next verse, verse 4 says, It is a command for Israel. It is a command of the God of Jacob. Your Bible might say, It is a statute for Israel. A decree of the God of Jacob. Both of these are commands. It's two kinds of commands. And it's really critical that we grab onto these two words. You're going to find out when we get to the end. It's a command for Israel. The command for Israel in Hebrew, say the word coke. Now say chok. This first command in Hebrew is a chok. It's a command. It's a command that makes no sense to you. That's a chok command. And in this blowing of the trumpet, the psalmist is saying, this is a chok for Israel. You just do it because God said so. It's a chok of the God of Jacob. And it's not a chok of the God of Jacob. It's a command, but it is a mishpah. A mishpah, a command for the God of Jacob. That kind of command means you have absolute understanding of what it's about and why it's being asked. So it's a command for Israel, a chok, that you cannot understand. Just do it. Blow the trumpet. Sound your praise. It's a mishpah for the God of Jacob. He knows why he's asking you to do it. That's what verse 4 tells us. A mishpah in the Bible would be something like in the book of Leviticus where God says to the children of Israel, you shall not wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material woven together. Okay, Uh, we won't. Makes no sense. I kind of like my polyester and my cotton, but whatever, your God will obey it. That's a chok command. God knows why He's asking that. Maybe He'll reveal it down the road, maybe He won't. That's a chok command. Remember that word. You need to remember it in your own life, and I certainly do in mine, because there are many occasions and many seasons in life that God's going to take you through chok decrees. He's going to ask things of you that make no sense whatsoever. He's going to take you through seasons that have no meaning to you, But you walk through them by faith because you believe that this hoax season for you is a mishpah to God. He knows what's going on. And so for us, we need to hang on to that. Because in these seasons of life, it's more critical than any other time to sound the shofar. Blow a trumpet of praise. Proclaim that we are those who believe in a God who not only knows what we are going through, But we believe in a God who loves us so that nothing touches us unless it first gets His clearance. And then He uses it for His good and our good. So we sing our praises. 
We do our best to bring thanks and remember the mighty things God has done. And we blow our shofar, and it's hard to do at times. And Asaph is asking Israel to do it. And Asaph is trying to do it himself during this psalm. And you'll see in a moment that he's asking them to do it in a horrific time of history. And not only Israel's life, but in Asaph's personal life. This is a hoax season for him. How many of you remember the band, I can tell by some of your silvery hair, uh, the, gla- the band Gladys Knight in the Pips? Woo-hoo! Midnight Train to Georgia. My wife, Marina, and I got to be Pips. We really did a memorial auditorium, and it wasn't for Gladys. It was for someone who actually has had, has had a greater influence on music worldwide than Gladys, uh, Gladys Knight. This is a woman whose name is Lady Tremaine Hawkins. And uh, for all you light-skinned folks, that may not mean much. But let me tell you a little bit about Lady Tremaine Hawkins. This is from the Edwin Hawkins Singers. You'll remember this. Oh, happy day, happy day. For us, that was just a very amazing song for the African-American community, the black community. A treasure that had been theirs alone was now being released to the rest of the world. That was through the Edwin Hawkins singers. Lady Tremaine Hawkins was one of those. She is a legend. For the church my wife and I go to, which is Center of Praise downtown, we have four services every Sunday. There's 3,000 people. It takes four services. We're in the choir. Let me just say we add color to the choir, my wife and I. And... um, So for us, we weren't familiar with Lady Tremaine Hawkins, uh, but we were asked to be pips, her backup. And we got to the Memorial Auditorium, and I'm finally standing out of the stage. I've been in bands in Sacramento since I was 11 years old, and I saw the Rolling Stones there, and, and Steppenwolf, and the, you know, uh, Stevie Wonder, Steve Wonder, and, and all these guys at Memorial Auditorium. I'm standing on the stage. The bad thing was I really didn't know her songs, and everybody else did during the sound check. I remember the guy a couple of times, he said, okay, some of you are, you stop singing. You really need to keep singing. It's really obvious out here. He should have said, spiky hair, white guy, you, you learn the song or get off the stage. It was, it was like a bad dream. Uh, but by the time we did the actual event, we had learned the songs. That woman sang the paint off the walls in there. She's 70-something years old. I think they're still patching the walls because that girl can sing. And it was a very moving uh, Easter. We had all 3,000 members at once. She brought a song that she sang that day that really is Psalm 81. And you don't get it yet, but you will in a second. This is part of the song she sang, I Never Lost My Praise. I've lost some good friends along life's way. Some loved ones have departed in heaven to stay. I've lost faith in people who said they cared. In time of my crisis, they were never there. But in my disappointment... In my season of pain, one thing never wavered, one thing never changed. I never lost my praise. That's Psalm 81, and you'll see why in a moment. You see, Asaph, as a young man, was in Jerusalem when King David told the people of an amazing promise that God had given to him. We see it in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. And the Lord said to David, you will have a son. He will be a man of peace, and I will give him peace from all your enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon. Solomon means peace. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son. 
I will be His Father, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom over Israel forever. You have to understand what this meant to this Levite, this priest in the house of God. What he heard from David is that he was living at the time that Mashiach would come, the Prince of Peace, Messiah. And he would rule over Israel forever. And God's house would be built. Behold, God will dwell once again with man. He was living, Asaph was living in the days of Messiah. And then as days went on and he saw David die, and Solomon rise to power, and the building of the temple rise in Jerusalem, it was all coming together for Asaph. The kingdom was coming. The Jewish people would be free to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Gentiles, the nations, the insane nations with all their idol worship. That would be us. Israel is the only people who knew the living God. He was living in a time when the Gentiles would finally know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was God alone. And they'd be subdued. And the Jews could study Torah, the Bible, the Word of God, without being hunted down and slaughtered by the Gentiles. He was on the mountaintop, this Levitical priest Asaph, earlier in his life. And it's easy to blow the shofar and shout your praise and bring your thanks when you're on the mountaintop. I had a very precious friend who said something once so profound, we both cracked up at the truth of it. He said, you know, Victor, when I've got a lot of money in my checking account, I don't know, I can just praise better. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> you need to know something about Asaph. At the time he wrote Psalm 81, all of his hopes, dreams, dreams, his expectations and his mountaintop view of life had come crashing down on him when he wrote this. He was a hundred years old when he wrote Psalm 81. King Solomon, the, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, who would rule over Israel forever, he heard God speak to David. David speak to the people. He heard it. Solomon had turned his back on the God of Israel and chased after Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, pretty much that's what it is. devil uses the same stuff today to take down men in leadership. And he also pursued the worship of other gods. This was not a brother. Solomon was not a brother who simply was hanging out at the clubs on Shabbat and drinking too much beer. That's not what happened to Solomon. He went way bad. He built many altars for his many wives. He also built an altar to Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Molech was a huge bronze god with a giant head of a bull, outstretched arms, and hollow inside so that the entire idol could be heated up to white hot temperatures. And the arms outstretched is where people would bring their babies alive and lay them in the arms of Molech as offering and Solomon took Israel in such a bad direction that the Jews themselves, during a short period of time, offered up their little Jewish babies to this idol. And Asaph lived to see the Prince of Peace 
become a wicked man and turn the nation of Israel over to wicked men. And there's good biblical reason to believe that Asaph's brother Zechariah, not the prophet Zechariah, the priest Zechariah, was actually assassinated in Solomon's temple by some of his goons. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of this, our brother Asaph writes, Sound the shofar on the new moon. Remember, remember this chok command God has given you to do once a year. Remember it's a mishpah for the God of Israel. And he continues in the next few verses, When God went out against Egypt, He established it as a law for Joseph. I heard an unknown voice say to me, Now I'll take the load from your shoulders. I'll free your hands from their heavy tasks. This is the voice of God now speaking through Asaph, reminding the readers of His mighty acts that He had done on behalf of the children of Israel, freeing them from 400 years of bondage in Egypt. Joseph, of course, going into Egypt, that's a thousand years past. He's telling the readers to remember because if they will give thanks, which is remembering the works of God and, and making them known, if they'll give thanks, it will help the Jewish people through this dark time. And Asaph hopes it helps him through this dark time. We like to say, oh, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, but there's times where we can't say that and we run to darkness just like the children of Israel have done throughout history. There are times we do that because we cannot find His gates. And if you can't find His gates, you can't find your God. And if you can't find your God, you're as undone as you were before you came to faith. I've been there. And some of you probably have as well. At this point in Asaph's life, northern Israel has separated from the south. Uh, Northern Israel has, has abandoned the Levitical priesthood, the worship of God. The southern part of Israel, they follow Solomon's son now, and he, and I'm not kidding you, is a Muammar Gaddafi, crackhead, crazy sort of dude. If you look into his life, just an insane man, and they choose to follow him. And on a personal level for Asaph, remember he's a Levite, so he comes from a family of Levitical priests. When Egypt came in at this time, which they did with the neighboring nations, they utterly destroyed the temple massacred everybody there. For Asaph, most of his family was massacred in that as well. This is at 100 years old. He writes this psalm for us today. He's asking the children of Israel to give thanks. Remember the hope commands. Remember the things God does that you've repeated to your children year after year. Because if you remember what God has done in your days of being decimated and running from God and disobedient, if you will recall what He's done, He'll bring you to His gates. Enter them with thanksgiving. Toda, toda robasar. Oh, I recall all that you've done. Because you get close to the gates of God and He'll grab you and bring you into His presence. And in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy and healing and washing and wholeness. And you'll be safe for that hour and that day. Blow your trumpet, Asaph commands us, as he battles to not lose his praise. I'm discouraged. I'm going to praise my way out of it. I am disappointed in what's happening around me, but I've been disappointed before. And I remember what God has done. I will make His acts known. I'm going to praise my way out of this thing. My life is destroyed, and that's happened to several, if not all of us at certain points. But I've been knocked down before. I'm going to praise my way out of this. I'm going to remember what God has done today. And today, I will find His gates, and He'll grab me and 
Bring me close to His bosom and I'll be saved from my despair. And then tomorrow morning, I'm going to need it again. I may need to do it again later when I get home today. Blow my shofar. This is a lifestyle, saints. It's a praise and worship lifestyle. It's not an event that just takes place here. So our brother Asaph, in the midst of his dismay and disappointment and discouragement, all of it a hoke to him. He can't understand any of this because King David made clear what God was doing and going to do in his lifetime. And it was all gone. And there was no putting it back together again. There was no hope that things would change. The rest of this psalm, I'm just going to read through quickly because I want to make a comment at the end of it and we'll be done today. The rest of this psalm, if not read with understanding, leaves most of today's readers, and I hate the word most, it's too wide of a brush, but I'm going to use it because I think it's accurate. The rest of this psalm, if read without understanding, leaves most of today's readers with an ancient, ignorant, anti-Semitic view of the Jewish people of today. Let me explain. Here's the rest of the psalm. My people, this is God speaking, listen and I will warn you, Israel. I wish you would listen to me. Don't have anything to do with the gods of other nations. Don't bow down and worship strange gods. I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I'll fill it with good things. But my people wouldn't listen to me. Israel wouldn't obey me. So I had to let them go to their own stubborn way. I let them follow their own sinful plans. I wish my people would listen to me. I wish Israel would live as I want them to live. Then I would quickly bring their enemies under control. I would use my great power against their attackers. Those who hate me would bow down to me in fear. They'd be punished forever. But you, Israel, would be fed from the finest wheat. I would satisfy you with the sweetest honey. This portion of Scripture, if not read with understanding, leaves today's readers with an ancient, ignorant, anti-Semitic view of the Jewish people of today that we are warned about in the New Testament let me say this, and then I'll finish. I am a Christian. By that I mean this. I believe, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no man, no woman gets to the Father but through Him. No Jewish man or woman gets to the Father but through Him. No Gentile, non-Jew gets to the Father but through Jesus. I'm a Christian. I was in Boston, Massachusetts, speaking at a large conference about the Word of God and God's eternal covenants that He has given to the Jews. And in the process of fulfilling in our very time of life right now on the earth, there was a very prominent professor, doctor speaking as well. And during the question and answer, a man rose from the congregation and said, Excuse me, doctor, I have a question. With all the problems and enemies facing the nation of Israel and the Jewish people around the world today, why is it that more Jews are not coming to faith in Jesus Christ? In other words, wouldn't God deliver the Jews today from all of their enemies if they'd only believe? Isn't that what the psalm is saying? The way we read this, we translate it to today. It's a great question with a mysterious, a chok, and powerful biblical answer. The professor, however, answered with the powerfully historic anti-Semitic answer of, well, <laughs> you know those Jews, they're a stiff-necked people. And the congregation 
chuckled and laughed and nodded their heads. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we know those Jews. You know what? I don't think any of you have a Jewish friend because you'd never say that. Those stiff-necked Jews, really, are they hook-nosed and money-grubbing and dishonest Jews too? Every anti-Semitic slur, were they, were they stiff-necked during certain times of their existence as a nation in the past? Yeah, but hey, I pastored a church for 20 years. I can show you stiff-necked. Jews ain't got nothing on us. And you don't believe me? Ask Mama. Ask Mrs. Lance. No, we can do stiff-necked right here in our own house. That was the Jewish people during certain times of their life. That's not who they are eternally. And yet that's how he answered. And that's how many reading this feel. And I was horrified, really. The professor had answered with an ancient and bigoted stereotype as the reason more Jews of today have not come to know Jesus. I have many friends who know Jesus and are Jewish. I have many, many friends who are religious Jews and can't see Jesus. The biblical reason Jewish people have not believed in Jesus touched my life in such a deep, personal way last week. And I want to share it with you. You see, I'm in a season of my own life right now. When it's only by faith that I'm blowing my shofar. And it's only by faith that I'm remembering and giving thanksgiving. I'm in a winter season of life right now. It's been said, and I believe it's true, a parent is only as happy as his saddest child. And my grandchildren's parents, my son and his wife, have split up. My precious son, my firstborn, and for most of his life, a powerful man of God now professes to be an atheist. And just saying this out loud is beyond belief to me. My mountaintop hopes and dreams and joys for my son and his wife and my grandchildren, their children, are dashed upon the rocks of despair. And the name of Jesus is not spoken in their house anymore. Last week I picked up my seven-year-old granddaughter and nine-year-old grandson and took him to a week-long VBS at Baptist First Baptist in Elk Grove. What a time we had. Just driving there every morning and talking. Ate lunch together afterwards, listened to their day, and then dropped them off at their day camp as both their parents are now working. And I drive home alone looking for my shofar. It was on the last day of vacation Bible school as I'd grabbed their hands and we were zigzagging around about 500 kids, literally, sitting on the floor. We're halfway out. And all of a sudden, my granddaughter puts on her brakes in the middle of this cavernous sanctuary, whips out this little bookmarker she had made, and in a clear, loud voice reads one of the most clear statements of prayer for salvation and a follow-up in becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ I've ever heard. And she just announces this thing. 
I do my best not to collapse from sobbing when she's finished. And it swept over me. This was the day and the moment and the second in eternity when my granddaughter believed with understanding in her heart and confessed with her mouth and she became eternal. And in this season of great sorrow, this hook season for me, and I have to imagine for my son and his wife as well, God arranged for me to be present to witness this great joy. If you are in despair today, hold on. Find that shofar all day long when it comes to grab you by the ankles and suck you into the mire of hopelessness. You don't need to give God thanks for what's happening. That's insane. But do give thanks in all things. Thanks meaning remember what God has done for you in the past and make that known. And as you get close to His gates, He'll grab you this hour and bring you in. And in His presence is fullness of joy and healing and hope for this day. Ah, but those Jews, you ask, those stiff-necked Jews, what do they have to do with this? Listen, we read a Jewish book written by Jewish hands. Every patriarch a Jew, every prophet is a Jew, every apostle is a Jew. They'd probably kick me out of First Baptist, but John the Baptist wasn't a Baptist. He was a Jew. Uh, Mary, Joseph, Jews, we've given all that we are and hope to be, including our eternal soul, to a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. And yet we read in the book of Romans chapter 11 a mysterious hulk, a command, a decree, an amazing statute concerning the Jewish people and we Gentiles. We've got no way of understanding it. And it's from this verse, these verses in Romans chapter 11 that we find the correct and biblical answer to the question that the professor in Boston answered with such arrogant ignorance. Romans chapter 11, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, Paul writes, so that you don't become arrogant. I don't want you to become ignorant of this hoax, so you don't be ignorant and arrogant. Israel has received, experienced partial blindness when it comes to Mashiach, Messiah, until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. They are enemies of the gospel for your sake, it says. They are enemies of the gospel on your behalf for your sake, Gentiles. With all the troubles in the Middle East, the rising anti-Semitism in the world, and in many of the churches, may I add, why aren't more Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Isn't there... Rejection of Christ, exactly why they're suffering so much? No. More Jews are not yet coming to Christ because my granddaughter had not yet believed. The fullness of the Gentiles had not yet come in. Our Jewish friends are being kept enemies of the gospel for my sake and your sake. Our babies, and should the Lord tarry theirs, 
They're enemies of the gospel on our behalf. But when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when God can't stand to bring one more Gentile in, when the last one that's going to believe will believe, then all Israel will be saved. Even that verse, there's lots of theology on it. I've read most of it. But just as in the days of Asaph, when he thought Mashiach was coming because it was so clearly stated, man, I wish I could have been here 20 years ago. I was so smart. My premillennial dispensationalism would work just fine for me. I don't know. I don't know nothing anymore about what God is doing. He is Jehovah Sneaky. But I know He's a good God, and I know He loves me. But most of what He does is a hook. It's a mystery to me. It really is. So I search for my shofar and my own deliverance from despair. And thank you for helping me find it because it's, in the, it's one of the reasons we come together. You can't give thanks by yourself. It's to others. I'll make your name known to others. So thank you for allowing me to find his secret place today. And in obedience to Scripture, I blow the trumpet on behalf of my own life and my family, on behalf of the Jewish people, as God has commanded from the prophet Isaiah. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest and give Him no rest till He establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They that prosper, that they shall prosper that love Thee. So, Father, we thank You for this time together with the saints. And I do pray for my brothers and sisters, and those especially who are in a hook season of life, a, a winter season. Oh, God, help them remember this song of Zion and the remembrance of not only what You've done in their life, but what You have done in all of time, by your understanding, you made the heavens. You can pay my PGE bill somehow, Lord. You spread out the earth upon the waters. I'm going to put out another resume because if you did that, you can certainly spread around my resume and get me a job. You brought the children of Israel out of 400 years of bondage. My God, you can deliver my son and you can deliver our sons and daughters. You're a God who knows how. Oh, I'm remembering who you are, God, and in doing so, I'm remembering that you care for me. I can almost see your gates, God. Bring us in with thanksgiving in our heart as we recall what you've done, and then, Lord, reach out and grab us. Go the long way and lift us up. Because in your presence is fullness of joy. We have found it today, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.